It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to the Prospect interview where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, arts and society. I'm Steve Bloomfield, Deputy Editor of Prospect magazine. This week we're talking to the infectious disease expert Adam Kacharski about the COVID-19 crisis here in the UK. Adam is a professor at the London School of Hygienic and Tropical Medicine where he studies the science of disease outbreaks. He's also just published a book, The Rules of Contagion, Why Things Spread and Why They Stop. Though it was written long before COVID-19 came to dominate our world, Adam's daily life now has also been consumed by the disease as he joins non-stop meetings about the progression of the virus throughout the UK and how best to curb it. He managed somehow, though, to take 30 minutes out from his schedule to talk to our arts and books editor, Samir Rahim, about why the virus has become an impossible problem all across the globe, what happens after lockdown, and what he makes of the UK government's response. First of all, I'm here with Samir himself. Samir, hello, how are you? I'm all right, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. We're, what, lockdown week five, six? It, it's, yes, hard to count actually exactly how many days it's been, but uh, everyone's in a routine, it's all sort of okay. The sun is still almost sort of shining, you know, although rain is due. Um, so yes, it could be worse. It could always be worse. I think that's true. Yeah, it could always be worse. Um, talking of things that could be worse, I mean, that's essentially what you spent most of your time talking to Adam about. Um, I mean, he's not the he's not the first person to uh, have realised ahead of time that um, that we're at risk of uh, facing a pandemic and perhaps not being able to deal with it. Um, we reviewed his book in the in the current issue of the magazine, which you can um, find on the website. Since you can't get to a newsagent right now, uh, what was uh, what was it like talking to him about, particularly that aspect of it of you know feeling like he's a, he, he's uh, publishing this book at just the right time? Well, in a way, it's just the right time and just the wrong time, isn't it? Because uh, uh, if it's funny, the book is is really interesting, and it's. Uh, although I talked to him a lot uh, in the discussion, obviously about COVID nineteen and epidemics and epidemiology, 
a lot of the book is about um, memes um, and uh, viral activity in terms of um, you know online mediums. And I can just imagine when he went to the publisher and he pitched this book, they were like, yeah, okay, you know, pandemics, they're quite interesting. Wasn't there something like SARS a few years ago? But, you know, you've got to take the metaphorical leap and, and talk about all these other things uh, as well. And they are interesting, but... Uh, I can imagine, uh, yeah, you can imagine those discussions in the publishing houses. Um, and, 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 you know, in a way, I, was, I can't claim to be any better because in, in December uh, of this year, um, uh, last year rather, so Peter Frankopan, um, the historian, pitched a piece to us at Prospect, um, which was uh, looking at the title now, We Live in an Age of the Pandemic, This is What We Need to Do About It. Um, so this is before COVID nineteen even had even appeared, and it's it's a it's a great piece, and it's really interesting looking back on it now. He's just warning us exactly about what was going to happen in the future. That you know we're, we're unprepared for a pandemic. This is going to happen. There needs to be more global cooperation. The WHO uh, needs to be listened to. Uh, you know, we gave him nine hundred words, and it was in the magazine. But you know, if it'd been more prescient, we would have given him three thousand words. Um, other people have predicted this. Ed Yong on the Atlantic, about I think about a year and a half ago, wrote a, a really good piece about uh, about how America was unprepared for a, a pandemic. And thinking back on my own feelings about when when I when I read the Frankopan piece and when we were putting it on the page, it was more like, oh, that's quite interesting. That's quite a prospecty thing to do, you know. Um, it's quite a sort of interesting piece i have to say it didn't strike the fear of god into me it didn't it just made me feel um you know vaguely anxious but it seems such distant prospect it seemed like something that you know either something you know that happened over there in foreign countries to other people uh, or something that was out of a movie but you know where we're living it right now aren't we it's interesting that idea of something that even when it's written down in black and white saying how big a threat this is if it's not something that you've experienced or your country's experienced recently or within just is within your realm of understanding it becomes very hard to contextualize that and think okay yes i'll take this seriously um there was a i wrote a piece for for the, the website two or three weeks ago about how um for the last 10 years the threat of a global pandemic has been one of the top four threats, security threats to the United Kingdom. It's in it's in their tier one of threats, like ahead of even you know, military invasion. Um, it's been in these sort of two big national security strategies. And yet, you know, when I spoke to the national security advisors who wrote both those strategies, they said, well, look, we, we said it was a, you know, it was this huge priority, but then nothing really happened. Um, and it was, it was almost as if even they weren't quite, you know, they was like, well, look, we, we, we said it was important, but then, yeah, it's, it's just, there just did seem to be this disconnect between, say, you know, putting it in bright lights and then the wheels of government saying, yes, this makes sense. Let's, uh, you know, let's make all these, let's make all these changes to ensure that we're, we're able to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, one benefit of the pandemic um, is that uh, I'm sure that we're going to be better prepared for the next one. And the next one might be worse. Um, I have, you know, friends who work with, you know, with Ebola in Sierra Leone. I mean, that's absolutely hideous disease. And um, uh, and but then again, it could be something completely different that just comes out of nowhere to strike us. I mean, maybe we can talk about governments and preparedness, and and, and certainly, 
have to hold them to account. But as you say, there is something in in human nature that if a if a threat seems very distant or hasn't happened for a very long time, it just suddenly does recede in the imagination. Even thinking back, you know, the last sort of ten or fifteen years, the threat of terrorism, which is so powerful in our, the public imagination, people talk about it all the time, and it's ramped up. It just seems sort of uh, certainly in the West, sort of minuscule in comparison. You know, I mean. A few hundred people die every year, maybe in terror of terrorism in the West. Uh, let's say it's it's nothing in comparison to the tens of thousands that we've had already, more hundreds of thousands that we've had um, already um, with this uh, pandemic. So I suppose it's maybe it's because um, if I was being facetious, maybe you can't stereotype a uh, a pandemic. It doesn't uh, activate people's ideological. Juices, if you see what I mean, in the same way that uh, the threat from um, terrorism does or the threat from foreign invasion does. It's quite exciting to think about defending our country from an evil outsider. But when it's just a sort of virus which has no sort of, you know, you can't really project uh, a morality on it either way. It just is what it is and we have to deal with it. Um, Maybe that's part of the reason. I think the other thing is, you know, a pandemic... Uh, doesn't hold press conferences before it arrives. It doesn't uh, produce grainy propaganda videos. Uh, it doesn't, you know, elect a demagogue or, or, or you know, kill some of its people before it moves on to other countries. So it's not part of our sort of our daily news cycle in the way that, uh, in the way that obviously you know other threats are. Okay, well. Um, I can't segue very smoothly, I'm afraid, from that into your conversation. Um, But that is where we're heading to now. Uh, Samir, thank you very much indeed. After this short break, we'll hear from Samir with Adam. So, Adam, thanks so much for coming on the Prospect um, interview. I know it's a very busy time for you right now. But your book, The Rules of Contagion, which is uh, reviewed in the current issue of Prospect, uh, was presumably completed before COVID-19 hit. But clearly, you thought that some kind of pandemic might be coming. Should the rest of us, uh, and including the government, be better prepared? Yeah, so the book was finished in uh, in November, um, so it was really just before this, and, and it actually it kind of opens and finishes um, with with discussions of the coming pandemic. So I think I'm, I'm certainly not particularly unique or prescient in my field. I think anyone working on kind of respiratory infections had um, either flu or you know based on SARS some kind of coronavirus on their radar. Um, and I think the question is always with when. I think we see uh, for, for a lot of outbreaks, yeah, I've worked on things like Ebola, Zika, um, flu over the years, that you know, there's always this, this kind of desire for outbreak response. But I think there's, there's often not the, the willingness to provide that support ahead of time. So even in the work we do with kind of modeling and analytics, people in our group you know, are kind of pulled off other projects to work on this. There's not that kind of big um, pre-pandemic ongoing support for a lot of this this stuff we saw the same with Ebola afterwards people said you know we should really make sure we prepare better for these things and then other things come along and you know I think governments sometimes will spend money on other things instead um and so it is you know particularly when there's not that that risk right there at that moment um it's often quite hard to make the case um that these things need to be supported I mean as you mentioned there we have seen a few uh different diseases coming up in the last 10 or 15 years, Zika, SARS, MERS, and Ebola, of course. Um, 
you know, what do those teach us about um, how we can respond to to COVID nineteen? Um, I mean, I think particularly uh, actually uh, diseases like SARS uh, and Ebola, there are lessons to be learned. Because I think um, although each outbreak has its own characteristics, we need to be careful to not assume that we're dealing with something that's that, that's familiar. I think a lot of these issues do crop up, and I think sometimes in reporting there's a tendency to assume that it's a, a country-specific um, problem. So, for example, you know, Ebola, there was a lot of focus on the need to get um, engagement from communities with the measure, get people on board with changing their behaviour. Um, and that's, of course, exactly what we're seeing with the current outbreak. It's really that, that focus on making sure people are, are kind of behaving in a, in a way that's going to help reduce risk for their communities. I think also of these outbreaks, um, we did see the importance of things like um, ability to trace contacts. I mean, Ebola and SARS both have features that make them much easier to do that because it's sort of very distinctive symptoms. Um, and I remember even sort of early Feb where we saw signals that, um, that COVID, you could have transmission before symptoms. And we just thought this is, is going to make things much, much harder. Um, but I think we do have to look at those examples of where measures have worked, particularly for coronaviruses, get evidence um, both from the current outbreak and from other outbreaks and, and really try and learn as much as we can because at the moment we don't have a lot of great options and, and even the kind of more optimistic options have limitations and caveats. So I think we really have to be, be looking everywhere we can to try and find an edge on this virus. You talk about transmission there uh, and in the book you talk about R, which is at the reproduction number. Uh, and that's, if I'm right in saying, the number of people likely to be infected by one person and the what's the rate of coronavirus is it, is it sort of high or low or it's really so on the on the kind of spectrum of infectious diseases it's i mean it's obviously high enough to transmit but it's not like something like measles you know if you put that in a susceptible population um each person might on average infect 15 20 others so it's not that extent of, of kind of explosive transmission but it's probably in the range of of each case infecting two or three others so it's a fairly similar to what we saw for sars so it's enough to make sure that you're going to get this exponential growth if you haven't got control measures in place. Um, but I think a lot of the, the work that, that we're doing on control, I think a good figure is, you know, you need to reduce transmission by about two thirds at least to be confident that you're controlling this thing. So that gives you a kind of ballpark for any measures you're suggesting, the level of effort you're talking about um, if you want to actually prevent outbreaks. So what kind of measures, I mean, you know, we're, uh, we're talking at the moment in lockdown, um, it may well be uh, lifted in some form in the next week or so, we're not, we're not really sure. Um, do you think that the response that most countries in the world have, um, um, have come up with, do you think that was our only option? I think the, the the big challenge we had with this virus is because there was um, we we're sort of starting from such a limited evidence base. I mean, we did some work very early on um, looking at these kind of isolation and contact tracing alone. So just these very very targeted measures that would be used for things like SARS, um, and we found that the characteristics of this virus would would make it very difficult for just those measures um, to be able to to contain this. And we saw, you know, in Singapore they recently introduced a lockdown. Even Korea, that's done a remarkable job, you know, of closed schools, they've got remote working. So it does suggest it's very hard to, to just have those targeted measures. I think a lot of countries, especially as transmission has grown, you know, if you're talking about tracing the contacts of a case, on average, people have, over their infectious period, maybe about 20 or 30 contacts. So, you know, once you get up into thousands of cases, you're talking about tracing, um, you know, potentially tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. So logistical job gets much much larger and I think for a lot of countries particularly places like Italy and Spain and the UK that that were having a lot of transmission 
really these extensive measures were, were probably in the short term the only way that we were going to get transmission to a, to a level that wasn't going to overwhelm our health systems. So is it, is it really about trying to control things to protect the NHS, but is it actually also about reducing deaths overall? Or is that something that um, uh, is, is possible? Um, I, mean, I think the, the focus has to be um, reducing uh, the, the immediate impact. I mean, we were seeing in, in some of the early analysis that we were doing and many other groups were doing as well, that if you're just relying on quite moderate measures, so people self-isolating when symptomatic, school closures, just, just these things alone, um, you were going to end up a situation where the NHS was going to be 20 times at least overwhelmed. I mean, just, just really a kind of unimaginable impact. But I think a lot of countries now are in this situation where lockdowns are in place. It's clear that this isn't going to be sustainable for a prolonged period of time, like a year or two if, if needed for a vaccine. And so they, they are going to have to think about these trade-offs that if you, particularly if you ease off these measures too early, you know, in a situation a lot of countries in Europe are still getting probably thousands of cases per day. And so if you ease off to measures too much, even if you kind of keep the outbreak flat, you're going to stay flat at that higher level. So, you, you know, countries even like Italy, Spain are getting quite large numbers of infections. If they ease off and have the reproduction numbers once, you just get this constant level of infection. That's the level you're going to be at going forward. So if you extend that over a period of months or, or a year, that's going to be a very large number of infections. I think countries just do need to decide what they they want to weigh up and actually what they they think is an appropriate level of infection over the period that they're looking at with the interventions they're potentially considering. So, you know, we can flatten the curve, but if the curve is, as it were, quite high on the graph, um, that doesn't help. Exactly. It's this idea that, um, and it's really the, the trade-off, that if, if you want to, to kind of maintain infection at a very low level, you're going to have to have lockdown in for a much longer period of time to get infections down that low. I mean, China, we saw in, in Wuhan, the lockdown was in place for the best part of three months. And that was a much stricter lockdown than the ones we have in many parts of Europe. So they really just kept that restriction until the infection got to a very, very low level. Um, what we're seeing actually in many areas of Europe, that although the curves have flattened, they've, they've not declined as sharply um, as they have in China. So actually, you're still seeing quite a lot of infection. And obviously, as soon as you start to relax measures, what might be a gradual decline now will either flatten or become a gradual increase. So we heard a lot at the beginning of this from scientists and indeed from the government about the phrase herd immunity, uh, which has now become something of, you know, uh, a phrase that people don't like to uh, like to, to bring up. But could you explain exactly what it is and whether it is actually possible without a vaccine? Yeah, so I mean, herd immunity is just it's originally a concept in um, looking at epidemics where um, uh, a large enough proportion of the population are immune um, so that transmission can't persist. Um, so it actually originated with the term um, sort of her behavior from psychology. So it's the idea that although you have some individuals in your population who are not immune, as a population as a whole, there's sufficient immunity for transmission to, to not continue. And usually it's used in the context of vaccination because we can vaccinate to a level that enables herd immunity. So some people, newborns, for example, might not be vaccinated, but there's enough immune people to, to stop transmission. Um, I mean, I think... Personally, I think a lot of the the, the messaging and, and discussions around herd immunity were just really not very helpful in the UK. And I think even people kind of proposing that it was an option or should be considered or, or any of these kind of things. I, I mean, I think we were faced and we still are with a pathogen that is incredibly severe. Um, and if there is uncontrolled transmission, you're going to see 
an overwhelming number of cases. So personally, I thought that having suggestions kicking around that the UK was kind of sitting back and letting people get infected and that that was even considerable as an option, I thought was was really kind of dangerous. And, and particularly, even now, I think some countries are getting tired of lockdowns. And I think you were seeing in the US, it's, it's starting to creep in this idea that that maybe we should actually just, just let it go through and maybe actually it's not that bad. Um, and I think we really have, we have such clear evidence that that's not the case. I think we have to steer people away from the idea that an uncontrolled epidemic would be anything other than, than devastating. And you know, unfortunately, there may well be countries that can't sustain an effective lockdown. I mean, you know, we're fortunate that, that a lot of us can work from home, but this, the lockdown is obviously having you know, a really in- intense toll on some people. And in some countries, they may not be able to reduce transmission um, sufficiently. So, so you will see an accumulation of immunity as a side effect of this, this really horrible situation where this isn't controllable. But I don't think um, proposing this as an aim is, is ever uh, really the idea. I think it's, some countries may achieve herd immunity because they can't fully control this, but, but I don't think we should start out with infections being the objective here. I mean, the, the the Sweden model is the one that people are people are pointing to and uh, and looking at. They do seem to be a, an outlier, I and mean, there's actually quite a lot of debate, I think, in Sweden among epidemiologists as to whether their more liberal tactics are, are going to uh, are going to work. But you you wouldn't advise the UK or uh, to have gone down that route. I mean, I think the the evidence we had certainly early on. I mean, we did some work um, in sort of late Jan, early Feb, showing that the China lockdown had worked. I mean. I mean, that's the other thing to bear in mind. That in, in early February, the data coming out of China was so noisy. I mean, you probably remember that spike in cases, I think, on the 13th, that actually even just showing what they were doing was working was, was a pretty mammoth task um, from, from trying to interpret data early on. But we, we kind of knew that lockdowns worked, um, but it was pretty clear that very light measures wouldn't. Um, so I think there is this question, and, and to some extent, countries that are relaxing measures now are trying to work that out of, of, of these combinations of measures is there something less disruptive that could still contain transmission? Because the, the tough thing with a, a lockdown from an evaluation point of view is everything happens at once. You know, people can stay at home, they're, they're not working, schools are closed, public spaces are closed, shops are closed. So you can't really untangle which of those is having the biggest effect on transmission. You can use modelling to get a rough sense of what might be going on. Um, but I think, yeah, I don't think we should go in with very light measures and expect that to control it. But I think if there is a, a, an intermediate ground that can have a big effect with less disruption, we consider it, um, should consider it. But I think the other thing with Sweden to bear in mind is, although they haven't had this top-level lockdown, there's been a big change in behaviour. So the fact they are seeing some slowdown in cases is probably just a reflection of the fact that the population has actually changed their behaviour quite a lot, even if it's not an official lockdown. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, and there's uh, and you know the, some of the worst affected places have been the ones with the highest population density, like London and New York. And then, of course, different countries have different numbers of people living in collective households or single households. So all those things need to be taken into consideration as well, presumably. I think I think definitely. I, mean, I think there's um, there's going to be some factors which are, are common across countries. I and mean, I think you know countries that sit back and countries that have lockdowns, you could probably you know divide those into groups in terms of what you'd expect. Um, but I think equally, as we discuss what's what's going to going to happen next, um, we need to think about the kind of combined measures that are being used. I think there's there's a bit of a sense in some of the debate that we could sort of cherry pick one measure from one country and use that elsewhere, and it will work exactly the same. And of course, a lot of countries have used combinations of things. So we need to really think about the the full basket of interventions that's being used, the resources and effort that were were being put behind it, and think is that something that will translate across? Because I think what we'll see probably over the next few weeks is some European countries for example might relax their measures and two countries might appear to do very similar things and have very different outcomes for, for reasons you mentioned and maybe some other ones too and I think we need to try and unpick that as much as we can but we shouldn't assume that um, at a very simple level two measures will have identical effects in two different countries. So the, the, the next stage people are talking about is testing, tracking and testing, uh, possibly some kind of digital certificate that you could get to say that you've had the had the virus and that might give you some kind of uh, immunity um do you think that's that's really the way forward and what kind of implication might it have for um you know personal freedom and uh, you know dividing people into people who've had the disease and people who haven't and and they can work and other people can't it's kind of an ethical minefield isn't it it, it is and it's um it's kind of a bit surreal because actually a large chunk of the book I actually dedicated to that kind of intense tracing and how that data is used for various purposes. And um, I think when writing it, it felt obviously it was very much from the privacy, the GPS tracking point of view. But now that's very much at the centre of the debate of how do we we use what's quite intense with tracing. And a lot of countries and uh, and regions, you know, places in Southeast Asia, uh, Korea, Taiwan that have done very intense measures have quite strict quarantine you know location-based quarantine measures uh for people I and mean, i think with the testing um we need to have a little bit i think more discussion about what we're aiming to do with testing um so i think there's one benefit is obviously it can help you track your epidemic i think some of the suggestions about mass testing would identify cases but identify them too late to stop transmission you know because if i'm testing you every week if i test you at the end of the week and you're infected then you may have had several days to spread it to others so unless i'm tracing those people you've got all these kind of missing links in the, in the chain. So, so I think the hope is that we can use these targeted measures. Um, I think apps, you know, there's been, even Singapore, there's been limited uptake. There hasn't been the, the sort of 60, 70% we'd hope. I think in Singapore, about 20% um, downloaded it. So I think what we're going to see is 
these targeted measures could help reduce transmission to some extent um, and then would have to make up the difference with some physical distancing. So that's still much better than being in a lockdown. But I don't think it's going to be that we're going to have, you know, some more tests and tracing and that's going to guarantee that the outbreak will stop. I think we'll probably still have to see restrictions in place. But in, in effect, those more targeted measures could buy us um, some ability to relax in other areas. So in a way, it's about time, isn't it? Because the argument of the, the lockdown and also the measures you were just talking about is that w- we might get more time to develop a vaccine. Ultimately, um, we saw tests for that starting, but presumably that's going to take quite a long time. Um, but also, what are the possibilities of antiviral treatments, um, not necessarily a vaccine, but um, things that help with symptoms? Um, yeah, I think the I think the the treatments are probably something we could see coming on sooner um, because I think the, the development times as things are off the shelf that could be maybe translated across and obviously that wouldn't solve the problem but even if you could reduce the impact of severe infection by by a fairly high proportion then that would um, that that would mean if you did have outbreaks you know the the actual health impacts would be lower um, and I think really what we've got to aim for is is something that's that as effective and least disruptive as possible in terms of measures um, I think that the huge challenge with this virus, um, as we've seen in, in models, but as we've seen just looking at countries' responses globally, that unless you get these targeted approaches to a really high standard, you know, unless you're really fast tracing huge amounts of people, um, it's very easy for the, the virus to slip through the nets. And we've seen that even Singapore, they're doing a remarkable job. It's, you know, it's hit dormitories of, of migrant workers, um, and then suddenly they've just got a huge flow-up of cases. Um, and so I think the the hope is we can make these these targeted measures work, but I think we need a, an awareness that even these are going to get us so close to the line that the margins of error are going to be really small. And so I think we may well have to have additional things in to help us ensure that we're maintaining control. I saw that you retweeted a story from the New York Times about how people reluctant in America to go to, to doctors, um, and that's including them getting vaccines for you know diseases we do have vaccines for like measles and uh, and whooping cough and there's a danger that we could have sort of uh, outbreaks of uh, uh, sort of other pand- other other diseases that uh, are following on from uh, uh, from this so all sorts of consequences that are difficult to to model yeah well. and i think it's um it's an enormously important uh, question to think about because I, I think sometimes it's presented as a matter of kind of economics versus health when we're talking about lockdowns or not but it's in many cases it's it's a question of impact on health now as a result of COVID infection or impact on health in the medium and long term um, as a result as you mentioned of things like parents not getting vaccinated in the US but in other places vaccine campaigns I mean particularly things like polio eradication now at risk um, because of these difficulties, um, we're going to see you know, impact of mental health. I mean, obviously, if there's lockdowns having an effect on household finances, that that will have health implications. I mean, there are these these links between um, you know well being and and longer term health. And I think understanding those trade offs and and having those inform evidence is going to be really important because I don't think it's the case that there's there's kind of a simple ideal option here that basically everything we can choose could have. You know, a really difficult impact on on large numbers of people, either in the the near future or in the longer term. And I think we do have to document that. And I think especially understand that if certain groups are getting disproportionately affected, you know, we've seen reports emerging that that you know certain socioeconomic groups are getting hit much harder 
both by COVID and the knock-on effects of that. And I think that's something that we really need um, a clear evidence base to avoid, you know, certain bits of our society and certain elements of um, inequality and inequity being enhanced by this outbreak. Yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of anecdotal reports, aren't there? I was um, speaking to a doctor who works in West London uh, the other day and said that her ward is basically full of um, Asian men in, the, in, in their 50s with COVID. And whether that is to do with... Um, certain comorbidities or different health issues or whether there is a genetic element and i presume we just we just don't know no the i mean uk research agencies are commissioning um a lot more work into this because it will be you know, it's a similar way why you've got this clear gender disparity in in severity that the males you know across countries seem to be getting more uh more severe outcomes and yeah, initially we were wondering, yeah, to what extent is that an element of lifestyle? Just uh, the, the exposure risk is different versus other underlying factors, um, comorbidities or genetics or, or who knows what. So I think understanding those differences is going to be crucial because especially if you have disparities in risk, you really have to understand what's driving that. I mean, the book is also not just about um, a disease. I mean, one of the most interesting things is, is the links that you, you draw between um, uh, uh other kinds of viral um, activity, as it were. So uh, panic spreading into the markets in 2008, for example, is something that you, you write about. And in a way, we're seeing now uh, uh, the sort of the anxiety and the panic from, from, from COVID spreading into, you know, for example, oil markets or the, um, the economy. Uh, how can we, are there similar d- dynamics at play as how, how a virus spreads and how fear spreads within yeah, a market? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's, there's certainly elements to that. I, mean, I think one of the the notable things about 2008 is there were there was a, a lot of financial contagion happening and some of it was quite tangible so for example you know if, if a bank went under people they owed money to would suffer as a result so it was those kind of direct loan links that you could measure but there were also um, very much those confidence effects I mean a lot of the credit crunch was driven by um, people just not really knowing who else was in you know in trouble for what and it it was kind of it was really a confidence and rumor problem um as well as that kind of just underlying um financial one i mean the early stages of the, the covid outbreak we saw really rapid um spread of misinformation i think similarly um studies of these things have shown analogies with infectious diseases i mean one notable one is it's often not the case that you get this kind of clockwork you know you share it to two people on twitter and they share it to two people and they share it to two people as you might imagine, that often there are these super spreading events or broadcast events, you'd call them in social media parlance, that drive a lot of these things. So actually, when something takes off, um, whether it's a conspiracy theory or misinformation, typically you can identify a handful of, of outlets or individuals um, within that that can drive it. And, and often, you know, you do get kind of malicious actors deliberately targeting um, high-profile individuals or outlets to try and get pick up on a story. And we've seen that this over the last few years in terms of fake news um, and these sort of things. But it's, it is also good to see now with, with COVID platforms taking it more seriously and actually putting measures in place um, to, to kind of reduce the risk of that exposure. So even if this information is spreading, um, we're seeing a lot more of like preemptive messaging. You know, if you search for, for COVID, you're going to get a lot of stuff from health agencies displayed to you to try and uh, in part, reduce the chance of your exposure to the more harmful information. Yeah, I mean, if if, if your WhatsApp uh, groups or anything like mine, um, all sorts of miracle cures are being spread. Um, somebody was telling me that uh, sumac 
we should all just eat sumac, um, which is probably made by a sumac manufacturer and somehow got into the system. And I mean, even on that note, um, you know, so there have been things from WhatsApp, you know, they're, they're re, um, rejigging to some extent this sharing on their platforms. And that's something they've done in the past as well of actually um, how easy things can, can propagate. So I think companies are making tweaks to try and reduce the chance of these sort of things spreading. Is there a wider point here? I mean, you know, we can we can sort of look at these fake news stories and and be sort of condemnatory of them as as as, as we should be, but is there an attitude towards science? I think that um, that is sort of goes at a deeper level in a way, in that we look at science, you know, to solve all our problems. You know, we look at science as a, it's a sort of magic cure for things, and the scientists should just come up with cures for things Im- immediately. And partly that's because science is so amazingly successful at doing those things. Um, but maybe um, recognising, as you demonstrated over this interview, that it is um, uh, a process that deals with experimentation and, and failure and can be fallible and um, uh, doesn't necessarily present all the answers in, a, in in an easy way. Do you think that we need to reassess our, our, our view and our sort of uh, science and indeed um, scientists, as you know, as in the phrase, we're just following the science, as if that was just one thing? Yeah, I and mean, I think the the big challenge, particularly early on with this outbreak, is there is a lot of uncertainty, and actually a lot of scientists you, you talk to um, will have some degree of confidence with certain aspects. You know, so early on, it was pretty clear this was spreading between people. It was pretty clear that this was having some impact of severity. Um, but there's a lot of unknowns. I mean, I've tried to kind of revisit some of my early statements on this to get a hand. Because it's very easy in hindsight to kind of think you, you were more or less confident than you were. Um, and actually, a lot of the interviews I gave, I think, were a mixture of, of concern, but actually a lot of just, I don't know. A lot of questions were like, well, we just don't know this yet. We don't know that yet. And that does create, uh, it, on the one hand, a vacuum for confidence that people who come in with with very clear, confident claims, even if they're wrong, can kind of fill that gap and, and enable things um, to spread. But I think even just in terms of next steps, um, I think yeah, we, we need to get away from sort of ideas that, that there's a very simple solution to this. I think even in the work that we do, you know, we can lay out an evidence, but in many cases, all the options we lay out have some pretty significant downsides. And then I think, you know, it's not, it's not just about us working on epidemics. It's about how, as a society, do we want to approach those trade-offs? Um, I think a lot of stuff we try and do, we try not to have a kind of strong view that this, this is what we, you know, this is the best good option because in many cases there isn't one and it's i think really a wider discussion that we need to have about these different trade-offs and and how do we want to approach it and we'll have to leave it there but thanks so much for your contribution to that discussion and uh, yeah thank you for your time And that's all from us this week. Our thanks to Adam Kaczarski and, of course, to Samir Rahim. Thank you very much for joining us on the Prospect interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review on the platform where you listen to it. It really does help other listeners to find us. Rebecca Liu is our producer. My name's Steve Bloomfield. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.